listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So there are many things in our life, or I think very few, that we could probably say that we are complete, 100%, absolutely confident in. You may have some confidence, at least some level in some things, but there are probably very few things in life that we could say, I am completely convinced of this. So I've been thinking about several situations that we might have some confidence, but we could probably not say just a complete confidence in this 100% all of the time, like money. Man, we try to do be good stewards, but there's always things that could happen. Downturn in the economy, a major expense. And so we might have some confidence, I'm going to have enough money this month, but maybe not a complete confidence. Or here in today's day and time, we have all these kind of education options. I'm wondering, do you ever question Man, am I making the right decision for my children? We think we are, but there always seems to be some doubt. Or could this be the year we go to the doctor and we end up getting bad news? Or how about our own personal safety? You know, we do a lot of things. We put a lot of safeguards in action. But at the same time, do we really have 100% confidence in our safety? I understood something about me. We travel a lot to Henderson and it's only about 40 miles away, and sometimes it ends up being two cars. And, man, I hate when we are traveling, and I don't have all of my family with me. I'm following, or they're following me. It just seems like anxiety begins to well up in a lack of confidence. Are we going to make it home? I know several of you are in that stage of, of dealing with aging parents. Man, you have complete confidence that you're making the right decisions all of the time and how to help and to guide them. We've got several going off to college. Some in that right now wondering, man, I've picked the right major. Is this the right school? Or is there a little bit of doubt? Or even take marriage. And do we ever feel, man, do they or question someone's love for us or our trust in them? Is this thing going to last? Well, the point is, it seems like there are very few things in this life that we can say we have 100% absolute confidence in. So today, Paul is going to write to these Christians in Rome, and he wants to show them something that he is going to say, I am 100% confident in this. And that's been my prayer for us this week. So quids, uh, kids, how many questions does Paul ask? Anybody want to take a guess? Confident in your answer, how many? A lot. That's a good. Wow. Hey, that's a smart kid right there. I think I heard it. Is it under 10? Over five? A little bit more than six? Seven. There you go. Seven questions Paul is going to ask. And so let's begin in verse 31. It says, What shall we say to these things? And Paul is going back to the beginning of this letter because this is a major section where he is going to be turning his focus to some major theological uh, doctrines over the chapters 9 and 10. So it goes back to chapter 1 through chapter 3, where he talked about 
so much of our depravity. You mean those weeks, every week I got up and got to tell you how bad you are. And we kept thinking, one day he's finally going to have some good news. Well, in chapter 3 it began, through chapter 5, it's about God's plan of reconciling, justifying sinners by grace through faith. Then in chapter 6, through where we are today, it's all about then, how is all of this working together to fulfill God's plan for all believers in our sanctification, and it's all about the work of the Holy Spirit. So this is what he's saying. Now, with all of these things I've been telling you about your depravity, about God's desire for justification, His plan of salvation, and the work of the Holy Spirit, what then shall we say about all of these things? And I think what Paul is doing, he is thinking back over his own life. He's thinking about where he was. And who he is. The things that he has done. The places he is now. And he's thinking back over what God has done. And when he's sitting there, there is no doubt left in Paul's mind about this idea. That God is for me. That God loves me. And so he's going to give three evidences as to why this is. That I believe truth that he fights back the doubt. That Paul believes God is for me. He loves me. He's going to give you three evidences. So look at question two. This is where he'll ask the question. If God is for us, who can be against us? And I got to thinking, then I don't know if I can even imagine a mindset or a world or even me being in a place that I am absolutely 100% confident in someone loving and being for me. That there always seems to be, even if it's just a small amount, there always seems to be some doubt. So what Paul's going to do, and here's your outline for this morning. The first thing Paul's going to show you, evidence number one, is that God will not withhold anything from us. In verse 32. Then evidence number two is that God will not allow anything to condemn us. And then nothing can separate us from God's love. And this is Paul's big ideas in this chapter. So evidence number one is God will not withhold anything from us. And I would say it, God is not a stingy God. And so if you have kids, there's that point in time where there's something that they need to share. It's that piece of cake or maybe it's the little bit of juice left and you tell them to share it. And you know what's about to happen. So one of them's going to pour it. And because they're so loving towards their brother or sister, they're going to give them the glass that has the most in it most of the time, right? You know, they're going to sit there and they're going to compare. They're going to look at that piece. This one's got a little bit more icing. And that's the one they're going to take for themselves. So I am sharing, but I'm holding just a little bit more back because there's just still a little bit of stinginess in me. But God is not that way at all. Look at question three. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So how can we really know God is for us? He says the first thing to do that, to become completely convinced that God is for us. He says, look at what God has already done. That to have you, he did not spare his very own son. And my mind immediately went back to Genesis chapter 12, 
of the story with Abraham and Isaac up on the mountain. What does God tell him when he sees what Abraham is willing to do? He says, stop. Because I can now see that you are not willing to spare your own son. And what does God do? He spares him. But in this case, God doesn't spare his son. He gives him up to have us. So if he was willing to give up his son, Paul is saying, then how can we question that God is really for us? And I think here's what we tend to do. We tend to say, okay, yes, I know God loves me. Yes, I know, for the Bible tells me so. And we see that in him giving his son of paying the price that he could have us. But then it seems like there is this part of us that we look at our life, we look at our circumstances, and it seems like that God is still holding out at least part of what is going to help me in this. And in some way, he's not really graciously in all things because there's so much need in my life. It'd be like if you got to, and I know this has never happened, but you would go and you get some notice in the mail that you've won a new car. No strings attached. You're not going to have to go set through some sales pitch. You, uh, you know, they're not going to get you there and it's, they're going to do a switch, which really not that car, it's this one. Or you, you know, really you want these steak knives instead. No, I mean, I'm talking no strings attached. All you have to do is show up and this car is absolutely yours. You go and you show up and they say, this is it, no strings attached. Here's the title to this car. It is absolutely all yours. Uh, note's been paid off. Here's the title. Go and enjoy. And you look at them and you're like, man, thank you so much. This is great, but I, I need the key. They say, well, no, the key's not included. I mean, the car's yours, but, but you know, that, that's not included in this deal. It seems like, God, there, there's this just little bit that he seems to be holding back. But he tells us, how will he not also graciously Give us all things. So then what is the all? I think when you look back over the context, it's the same thing that we see when he says he will work all things to our good. That God will give us everything we need to accomplish for his glory and our good. He will give us everything we need to follow him or fulfill the purpose that he has for our lives because he is not a stingy God. He is not holding anything back. So Paul says evidence number one. So God's love gets put on trial once again, but he's going to give a second evidence. He says he's not going to allow anything to condemn you. Or I would say it this way. God is not going to let anyone, especially Satan, talk smack about his children. Because look at verse 33. Who will, shall bring any charge against God's elect? So it's a question, and there really is one answer. And the answer is the one that's going to do this is going to be Satan. You look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Satan is called, referred to as the accuser. So I think Paul has in mind this idea of the final judgment where God's elect will be gathered together. God will be ushering in all of those that are called according to his purpose, that have come to faith in Jesus Christ, and Satan will absolutely be there. And he will be throwing every single accusation and giving all kinds of evidence against God's elect. And here's the point. Satan's not going to be wrong. Satan is going to have all of the evidence he needs to say this one should not be allowed in your presence. 
And he's not going to be wrong. He will have all of the evidence he needs. In fact, I gave him enough just this past week to last me for an eternity. That he's not going to be wrong. But God will throw out, he will dismiss every single charge. But not because Satan's wrong. But because God has already paid for every single one of the accusations. That God is not going to let Satan talk bad about us children. Because notice, he goes on to say, it is God who justifies. And once God justifies, there is nothing that can ever reverse that. So he says, who is, question number five, who is to condemn? Who will then be the rightful judge? He says, Jesus Christ, the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed is interceding for us. And Paul has just laid out four massive doctrines. The doctrine of the atonement, of the substitution, he died for you. The doctrine of the resurrection, that he raised Jesus back to life. The doctrine of the ascension, that he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. The doctrine of intercession, that he is interceding for us. But here's what we have to understand, so that we do not take Christ's death lightly. That Christ's death, why is it so important? Because we read about and we hear of God being a God of love. And man, if God is love, then why doesn't he just say, you know what? Man, they didn't mean that. Or, you know, they just didn't know him better. And God could have, if he wanted to, just completely forgive everyone. Wipe the slate clean. You know what? I'm going to forgive absolutely everyone. Or he could have said, you know, I'll forgive those that... But Satan, if that would happen, Satan would be able to cry injustice. And he would be absolutely right. And God would be a fraud. So take it this way. So say this week, I don't know, somebody runs a red light and they crane into your car, total your car, and they are absolutely at fault. Man, there's cameras that capture it. You've got all of these people around you that witnessed it. You are absolutely in the right. Someone else is absolutely in the wrong, and they're responsible for everything. Or even worse, someone abuses a child. And let's say there's a trial, and the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. The judge hears evidence after evidence, uh, proof after proof, witness after witness. And there is absolutely no doubt that this person is guilty. Well, that judge steps up on the, in the bench and, I don't know, maybe he just feels sorry for the person. You know what, man? I know they really didn't mean it or, you know, there were so many bad things that happened in their life. And I'm just going to, I'm going to show them mercy. I'm just going to forgive them. Even if that person begged for mercy, I'm sorry, I'll never touch another child again. And that judge just drops the charges and lets that person go. You would be crying out for justice to be served. And so that's what had to happen. We are only declared innocent, not because the judge dismisses our charges, but that he came down off the bench and he paid the price for every single offense that we did. The price had to be paid. So Paul says, first of all, God is not a stingy God. 
Second, he says, God will not let anyone condemn or talk bad about his children. But then the last evidence, there is nothing that can separate you from God's love. And I would say God cannot and he will not ever divorce you. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So our sixth question. And Paul is going to lay out seven options for this happening. And notice what they are. Tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. So he says tribulation. Can that separate us? Meaning trouble, or distress, meaning hardships, difficult times, persecution. Famine, not having enough food, nakedness. It can be the basic necessities of life or even humiliation, danger, pitfalls, sword, meaning death. He said, can any of these separate us from the love of God? And what is interesting, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 quickly. Let me show you something beginning in verse 23. Paul is laying out a question. Who can separate us from the love of God? And he puts down seven things in the next question. With those in mind, listen to how this reads. He's writing to the church in Corinth, and Paul says, Are they servants of Christ? He seems to love questions for some reason. I am better. I'm a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil, in hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger, in thirst, often without food, in cold, in exposure, and apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." Paul experienced absolutely every one of those and more. But here's my question. How in the world does Paul not give up? Because I'll be honest with you, if this is me, I don't know if I'd be saying these things. I don't know if I could do this. Because on this, looking at these seven options, when I read these, these are things that would cause anyone to question that someone is actually for them and loves them. Take my family. Say we're going through life and I allow all kinds of, and I walk down them, all kinds of trouble to come into my family. Distress, hardships. It happens and I do nothing to stop them. Persecution. Famine. Don't provide enough food. Let them go hungry. Nakedness, I don't provide enough clothing or shelter. Let them be humiliated. There's all kinds of pitfalls and I do nothing to stop them. Sword, I allow someone to break into my house and I do nothing 
to stop it and I just allow it to happen. And you look at that and go, is that a man that really loves his family? I'm thinking my family, and they should question, is he really for us? Does he really love us? Does he really love us? And I think Paul puts forward these examples, first of all, because he actually lived them. He could list all of these things from personal examples. But he knows that these are the very things that will cause people to lose confidence and that God loves them and he's for them. And Paul knows that. When you think about these first Christians he's writing to in Rome, they hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and the only way to be reconciled to God and inherit eternal life is to put your faith in this man that 30 years ago they crucified, hung on a cross, and he was raised again. And they hear news that changes everything. But in no way or no form does their life get easier. It only gets harder and harder. And I imagine many people losing confidence that God is actually for me. I wonder, have you ever thought that? Have you ever questioned that yourself? If God is really for me, if he really loves me, then why is this happening? So then he quotes Psalm 44, verse 22. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You know, first reading, that's not real encouraging. That's not real helpful, is it? But when you begin to step back and realize what Paul is doing, the things that try to tell people that God is not actually for them, Paul knows are actually the very things that give you a greater assurance that he is. That the circumstances of this life are used by Satan to get you to question God's love. How do I know that? Because all I have to do is go back and look at the garden. The thing that Satan got Adam and Eve to do is to question God's goodness. And he can't really be for you. I mean, look at what he's holding back all these things from you. So he didn't have to destroy them. He only had to get them to question God's love. And it worked. So the things that should cause Paul to question God's love are the very things that brought Paul a confidence. Because notice how Paul answers that question in verse 37. He says, no. Can any of those things stand? He says, no. In all these things, the same seven things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He says, through tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, even the threat of death, these end up being the very things that showed Paul he was more than a conqueror. But notice where his confidence is. It's not in himself. Paul's not the hero of his own story. He says that we are more than conquerors through him. And then Paul says, I think the most amazing thing at the beginning of verse 8, four words in the English. He says, for I am sure. He says, I am absolutely confident in this. There is absolutely no doubt left in me that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ten things that he says he is absolutely sure, absolutely confident, cannot and will not separate me from God's love. So in short, Paul's saying there isn't anything. There is nothing that would ever cause God to divorce me. But here's what I want to know. How does Paul get to this place? How does Paul get to this place in this confidence? Because deep down, I know I don't have this, but I sure desire it. So how does he get to this place that he doesn't question With all that's going on, there's nothing in him that questions that God loves him and is for him. Because I would be lying if I said that I never questioned God's love for me. Because I look at the things I do and God has every reason to not love me. And then I get real selfish and think, well, why is this happening? If God really did, why is this thing happening to me? So how does Paul get there? Looking back over his life, I think I see three things that get Paul to this place. One of the things that happens for Paul is I think he becomes less and less tethered to this world. I think the things of this world become less and less important to Paul. I think he cares less and less about material things. He once lived for the praise of people, but not anymore. The things that bring people comfort did not matter as much to Paul. And so day by day, I think he becomes less tethered to this world. And he kept focused on a future grace. But I think the other thing is this confidence came only through suffering. This confidence could never be experienced in a life of comfort and ease. There were things that Paul had to learn and this confidence was built through the struggle. But the last thing, and this is the hardest one, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. That Paul, he's not the hero of his own story. Because I think Paul knows that in his flesh, these sufferings would cause him to question. He knows that in his flesh, he could never become less tethered to this world. That he sees it's the Spirit's work in his life. And you want to know why I believe that? It's because what he wrote in another book. In Ephesians 4, or Ephesians 3, verse 14, he is writing to another group of people in Ephesus. And listen to what he writes. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So he's praying for them. And notice what he prays. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, and here it is, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So he knows they can't find this on their own. He knows he has to pray that the Spirit would give them the strength to be able to comprehend and to know. 
And so what does he do? He lays out three evidences. You have to fight the lies with the truth that God is not withholding anything from you. That God is not going to let anything condemn you and nothing can separate you from God's love. So here are three things I want you to take away and we'll be done. First of all is this. God's love cannot be measured by what happens to us. Our life and our circumstances and the things that are going on, that does not define God's love. All the evidence we need to see God's love is the cross. That God's love cannot be measured by what happens to us. But here's the next one. This for me is the hardest. God's love cannot be affected by the things I do to it. God's love for you and God's love for me is not effective, is not determined by how well you live. His love is absolutely unconditional. It is unlike anything that you could ever experience here on earth. And I know that is a truth that is hard to live in. That God's love is not affected by the things you do to it. And then tell yourself over and over, you will never be more actively and generously loved by anyone other than God. And so I want to close with an example of somebody that got this same confident spirit that Paul had. He lived about 400 years after Paul. He was the archbishop of Constantinople. He died in 407 A.D., named Chrysostom. He's brought before the emperor. The emperor threatens him if he will not denounce Christianity. If he remains a Christian, he's going to banish him from the kingdom. And Chrysostom replies, You cannot banish me from this world because this is my father's house. He says, then I'll slay you. He says, no, you cannot, for my life is hid in Christ. Then I'll take away your wealth. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven, and that is where my heart is also. But I will drive away from you every man, and you will have no friend left. No, you can't, for I have a friend in heaven that you cannot separate me from. So emperor, I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to hurt me. Isn't that the kind of confidence that you want, that you know that nothing can separate you from God's love? Because I think there are so few things in this life that we can be that confident in. So I pray for you and I pray for me that the Spirit will build in us a confident spirit like Paul. It says, no matter what, God is for me and He loves me. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.